right, everybody. Welcome to the Bill and Cap Show. We have somebody honestly really cool, exciting, and I think you should pay extra close attention for this one because it's just going to be a massive knowledge dump. We have Fernando Angelusi. It means angel of light in Italian. He is the senior managing partner of Triple SE. Angelucci, tell me a little bit about yourself. So, uh, uh, son of two immigrants from Brazil. I'm actually in southern Brazil right now while we record this. Um, they came to the United States basically with the, the old school American dream. Go to school, get good grades, go work at a company for 40 years, retire with a pension. That doesn't work anymore. So when I was 16 years old, um, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that what got me on my real estate journey. I graduated as an ag bio engineer, but only lasted 13 months before I started my real estate career. Started with single family wholesaling, then flipping, then rentals, then multifamily flipping and rentals. And then eventually I was getting tired of kind of the way the laws were becoming very tenant friendly. So I started selling off my entire portfolio in 2016 because I thought the market was going to crash. Obviously I was super wrong. Sold the last one in 2018 and then immediately started buying self-storage. So August of 2018 is when I bought my first self-storage facility. And by the time this podcast airs, I'll probably be up to about 250 million in storage transactions. That's huge, man. And so how many years will that be total to get to a quarter billion? So I started August of 2018 is when I bought my first self-storage facility and we're recording in what, uh, February of 2023? Yeah, that's huge, man. And so, you know, thinking about your story, and we always do this before the podcast, I'm like, all right, how do I frame, you know, Fernando's kind of whole journey and what is the best way to, to talk about it? And I think about you and I'm like, man, this guy, well, one, the speed that you've, that you've accomplished, what you've accomplished is huge, right? And I think just talking to you, you know, Initially, I'm like, yeah, this guy's got an awesome personality. You you educate well, right? Like, I'm like, okay, he he gets it, and and I think that was kind of something we were talking about before. You were saying that you are out there. You're probably one of the more prolific guys on this podcast circuit, and so I see you teaching and talking all the time. So tell me a little bit about how that's kind of played into your journey. From, I mean, this is the classic journey, right? Single family, fix and flip, the renting out multifamily get to a bigger asset class, start using your own money. Then you kind of say, hey, maybe I can use other people's money to help fund the loan and this whole thing. So tell me about the role that social media has played with that. Yeah, so it's been huge. My business partner and best friend, Stephen Ware, he actually went to school for advertising. So when we partnered up, everything I was terrible at, he was amazing at, right? So really good partnership in the beginning. And he said, the way we got to make people aware of who we are so that we can provide value. It, people always say provide value, provide value, provide value. But how do you do that if no one knows where to find you or to find that value, right? So what we looked at is, you know, I went through some of these, you know, self-storage courses and stuff where I paid. And obviously, I'm a very self-motivated, self-driven guy. So it, it, obviously, I knew it was going to work out. But when you look at the, the numbers, uh, what is called the info marketing business, when you're selling education, the numbers are actually really abysmal. And most of the time, it's not because of the person teaching the content. It's because people buy the education think it's, thinking it's a done-for-you magic bullet without ever having to 
put any work in and that's not how it works. So what you find out is less than 5% of the people that go through these types of courses in general will ever make their initial investment back, let alone become super wealthy. And it's typically because they don't have the motivation to do it themselves. So then all of a sudden you have all these problems that come up with, you know, people suing you because they thought that you're misrepresented or you have a lot of people that you're trying to help, but they're never wanting to help themselves in the first place. So I said, let's look at this from the other direction. How about instead of charging for the content, what if we give all the content away for free and then just say, hey, if you are that special 5% that is actually self-motivated, then once you get to a part where you're stuck and you have a deal in place or you're underwriting, just call Fernando and he'll partner with you on the deal to get you to the finish line so you can learn by doing. Because if you look at the, you know, the information triangle, information period, pyramid, just reading or hearing things is one of the worst ways to absorb information. And at the very bottom of that triangle, the best way to absorb inf information is either by doing it or even better, teaching it to someone else. Right. So it's not it's kind of dual edge. I'm learning because I'm teaching. See one, see one, do one, teach one is the kind of tongue in cheek, cheek concept in medicine. You know, I, not to you know, name drop here, but I'm an ER doctor. And so I take a lot of that experience from teaching and I like hear what you're saying. I'm like, yeah, man, that's that's completely true. Right. Like you, you, you do absorb it. And that's not to down, you know, this five percent stat. Right. It's like you shouldn't necessarily it's not a bad thing necessarily like of course not everybody that sees a bit of content is just going to blast off but and so it is nice to have a, a cultivated lecture right but you got to see one first and then you can right. do one and then when you're ready to teach it like what you do all the time right every single show you're kind of like processing like oh yeah i didn't think of that question this guy spoke to me about this or every time somebody's asking you for advice you're like Okay, and then you reprocess it in your mind and you solidify that. It's almost like this mental practice without even having to do the deal. And it's, it's very powerful, you know, to teach one. Right. And the, the teaching is great because that 5% of, you know, entre you know, if you look at the percentage of entrepreneurs versus regular people in the, in the world, it's about that same ratio. It may be even a little bit lower than 5%. But then sure. on the flip side, you have this other 95% that they're seeing the education, they got it for free, and they're saying, wow, like that seems super hard, I don't wanna do that, but clearly Fernando knows his stuff, so what if I just give Fernando my money and he goes and does that so I can just collect mailbox money, these checks that just show sure. up and not ever having to do it, but still get exposure to this great asset class. So that's the second piece that comes into it. And then the third piece is, once you become so prolific in the social media and in the content space, then, the vendors that you work with start knowing who you are. I was literally just on a call with a large uh, national broker, very famous in the storage space, right before this podcast. He says, I've seen you all over LinkedIn and Facebook, and how have I never talked to you before? You know, it's like, well, we're talking yeah. now, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, I mean, because there are, like you said, this space is very new, right? And it's still developing right. and there's relationships to be had there, whether it's these kind of value add. I, I've been interacting with a lot of folks kind of on this like cutting edge of self storage that are that are doing you know different integrations, whether it be moving. There's a company called Caddy that does like integrated moving. So like you can have the uh, self storage owner, they can just integrate Caddy. And now with the click of a button, you can have an on demand moving service when people move in and move out, then they get a little rev share split. 
and it's like, okay, that's cool, or smart locks, or all these monitoring systems, right? Like heat detection monitoring with storage defender. It's like, wow, that's kind of cool stuff. So you start interacting with the space more, and it's like, yeah, these are interesting people. And it's like, what's the synergy there? Well, I, don't know, I get to know them. I get to bring their message out, and they talk about me, and you just kind of like go together. It's kind of – I definitely see that with you as well, man. Yeah. You, you got that down, Pat. So tell me a little more. You know, you have done so many things, right? And you did it in four or five years basically. Right. Give me a quick run through. And this, this is a lot of stuff. So if you're listening, just pay attention right now to Fernando. Rip through your journey, right? You can probably divide this up into stages. We'll, we'll start at the self-storage thing because you did the single family, multi-family kind of move. Then you're like, boom, you know what? I'm going into self-storage. Tell me about the first type of deal you did because, I mean, you're saying you've done these uh, resident – or sorry, these ground-up ones, Class A. Obviously, you've done REITs. You've done fix-and-flip type things with the big box retail stores where you kind of repurpose them. So go through that for me. Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of quick-fire go through this. So my very first deal is your traditional – classy self-storage deal within my backyard right it took me two hours to get there from driving in chicago traffic it was sixteen thousand net rentable square feet it had no gate it had no electricity it had no office it had no fencing it was behind a dunkin donuts and i bought it at 99 percent occupancy at a seven cap in 2018 okay and then we use this one i said if we make no money on this at least we'll learn because the way that i do things is before i hand anything off to a team member or to a third party i need to do it myself so that i know they're doing it right correct yeah. so we you're answer the phone calls sorry, you're literally saying my business partner ben says that exact phrase to me he's like listen we're gonna do this ourselves." I know we don't want to do it, but we're going to do it right. We're going to learn it ourselves. I'm like, fine, okay, I'll do it. Right. Sorry, go on. Right. Okay, so you're, yeah. you're doing it yourself. You're the manager so of this first one. I'm answering phone calls. I'm cutting off locks with an angle grinder, like disc grinder, right? I'm doing the whole, <laughs> the whole shabam. Yes. And how we bought this one was with a bank and with our own money from the partners, right? Classic. So that was the first Literally classic the most classic that you can get. Yep. Right. Then from there, we say, okay, this works. I don't need to look within my, my own backyard because unlike single family or multifamily where there's literally, you know, if you're in a big city like Chicago, there's literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of those different houses or investments that you can buy. Storage, there's only about like sixty to 70,000 mm -hmm. in the nation. So you, you have to eventually get out of your backyard or else you'll never be able to grow. Mm -hmm. So then we started buying in more red states. So Tennessee, North Carolina, Alabama, stuff like that. Same type of, of asset. What I call the mom and pop class C, class B facility in secondary tertiary markets where we can come in at a heavy heavy cap rate, vet to an even better cap rate, and then combine it into a large portfolio and sell, right? So that was number yeah. one. Yeah. Then I wanted to start getting into these larger deals because they were, you know, set a square foot goal that we set when we did our EOS process. So to get to that square foot goal, we couldn't keep doing these 16,000 or 20,000 square foot facilities. I need to start knocking out 60s and hundreds, right? 100,000 net rentable square feet. So what we did is we did our first ground up development. So bought the land, about four acres, 1.35 million bucks. We put up the facility. It was three stories, 108,000 net rentable square feet. This one was the first time I brought in. The reason I bring up this one is because it was a 
Now we're kind of going to the other side of the spectrum, which is higher risk, REIT grade, class A facility, and the financing structure is, is different too. So I went to a bank to get the loan, but I still needed like $3.1 million for down payment, which I did not have. So then I read every book I could find on how to do syndications. So I raised sure. all this money from friends and family, that $3.1 million. We built the facility. I even I even got the the Genvest in the deal as an owner. He put in fifty grand of his awesome. own money. Nothing which, makes him better. Nothing makes it better than that, dude. Because oh our original God. project cost was going to be like twelve point seven million, and it dropped to ten and a half in that time, right? And for another reason yeah. as well. So then our plan was to run it till it was fully stabilized, which we thought it would be about four years to do that. And then because of the timing, we were able to actually sell it at certificate of occupancy for our stabilized price five years later. So instead of it taking five years for me to double my investor's money, it took me 13 months to over double their money, right? So now I'm starting to build the track record. And then all of a sudden, COVID hits, pandemic hits, and we're starting to have I've supply chain. <laughs> yeah, starting to have supply yeah, chain issues, pricing volatility on on things banks don't want to lend because they don't know what's happening in the world so i said okay i got to find a way to not only shorten the construction timeline but also decrease my pricing and still get these large properties under my belt so then we started looking at okay well everyone's stuck at home no one's going to go to shopping malls or shopping centers anymore and at the same time amazon is slowly killing the retail world and then the pandemic just put a death nail in that coffin, right? So now all of a sudden I say, hey, let's go buy these big box retail stores, you know, Sears buildings, Kmart's, Circuit Cities, you know, and then convert those into storage. And the reason that worked so well was number one, we're able to get these things at a per, per square foot cost that is so much lower than building the exterior of the envelope that it dropped my total project cost by almost 30%. And then because we're already sure. starting with, walls in, if you will. Uh, it also dropped my construction timeline from 12 to 14 months down to like six to eight months. So win-win on both sides, right? And that was a very interesting way to approach that because now, now we're pivoting and we're taking advantage of, of a situation that everyone was freaking out about. And our banks loved the idea. They absolutely loved the idea. And at this point, I'm already full-blown syndicator. Every one of our deals is a 506C. We're raising capital from our friends and family. They've told their friends and family. Now we're starting to get some attention because of our track record from more, call them quasi-institutional investors. These are your, your high net worth individuals, your family offices, your wealth management firms, what have you. So that was there. And then what, I was like, okay, where, are, where do we go next? Because we always like to see, okay, what, what, what are our bottlenecks? And we realized our bottlenecks was not the debt. The debt loved us. It was the equity because I was raising from friends and family. They're all cutting checks in the fifty dollars to $250,000 range for their first deal, right? And that takes a lot of phone calls. You need to know a lot of people. We have over 670 investors of that type that, that know me. I know them. I know their names, stuff like that, right? But that's hard if you want to do. Trust you, know you, but they're not these big you know, obviously 50, 50 is a lot to, to a lot of people, but like sure. if you're doing projects that are worth so much money, it's like, okay, having to do this investor relationships thinks it, 
it honestly, Fernando, your story. I uh, I can't wait to show this podcast to my partner because your story is like almost exactly the same as mine. And the way you're talking about doing all this stuff and scaling up, it's like that's why you see me laughing during this podcast. I'm like, oh my god, man, like, right. Ben is just going to eat this up because he <laughs> yeah. says this stuff to me all the time. I'm like, okay, this is all right, fine, and you know managing these investor relations at that scale is something in itself right like think about right. all the all the things that you have done you know from like you said grinding locks off the you know off the side of your self storage facility to investor relations to relations with the bank and all these different things they all take time and you don't right. have an infinite amount so you're like all right I need to scale a little bit larger with raising funds so what how did you kind of get that next level of investor Right. So to start attracting those type of quasi-institutional, I'll call them, you know, family offices, they, they need to see a track record because sure. it's no longer about they, them knowing, liking and trusting you. They don't know who you are. So you come as like a blank slate and all they can go off is what is your provable track record? Show me settlement statements. Show me investor distribution schedules. That's what they want to see. So once you get to that point, then it starts making it easier to do deals at a faster rate. And then you kind of got to build both sides at the same time. So this year alone, I'm going to be doing 10 REIT grade ground up developments. Let's just assume just for ease of numbers, each one of those deals I need to raise 3 million bucks on. That's $30 million that I have to raise in one year. It, that's, it's hard to raise that much from people cutting $50,000 checks, right? So you have to start raising Just from, from these. Just from a pure yeah, workflow standpoint, I mean, you would have to how – many, how many phone calls does it take for your average in a 50K, right? Especially if they're a first-timer and there's some nervousness just in entering right. a new asset class, right? Because a right. lot of these folks are just like, okay, you know, they, they might be accredited investors, but they're typically doing the stock market thing. They're like, mm, I don't know. And I remember – this is such like a non-legitimate thought. I think like my very first big syndication that I invested in, and this was a huge company. It was actually Spartan, which I love. These guys are super. Those are cool. my good friends, uh, and I also have money with. Dude, love them. And so I actually, side note, when shout you, out to I Scott Lewis. When I, yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember when they when I invested with them. They still had on their homepage. I don't think it's there anymore. Or on their like our deals page they had at the very bottom the first like little three unit that they had done i'm like oh i see the guy's journey i don't think it's there anymore since they've right. done you know hundreds of millions but I, I remember sending a check to them and i'm like and these guys were already very well established at the time and i'm like what if they just take my money and I'm like <laughs> that's okay sure people can steal your money and like this isn't i know this isn't to like downplay risk or like oh throw your money out there but like that wasn't really a legit legitimate you know fear like the right. chance that your money just disappears of course you can get like some enron-esque crazy stuff but like you know these are established guys working with banks like investing in real properties like so it's just it's not just going to disappear you know right. but that's a that i had as an investor so you're you're dealing with these new accredited investors that are doing these things it's like yeah it takes some phone calls and what i found to actually make my my investments easier to raise money for was I, you know, every time somebody asked me questions, I'd write it down and put it into a master question log so that I'd be ready on the next time I'd go pitch. And you know what most of my credit investors wanted? They didn't want gains. They wanted losses. They wanted depreciation to offset 
their their gains that they're already making. A lot of them are already making a lot of money. They're like you. They're doctors. They're business owners. They're other. I have a lot of real estate investors in different asset classes, and they're like Fernando. I have a huge tax problem this year. I need to lose four hundred thousand dollars. How do you how do you do that for me without actually losing four hundred thousand dollars? So then what we started doing was using these cost segregation studies, which are just, I mean, absolutely amazing. So my investors now, I say, hey, the returns are typical returns that you're going to see, right? 16 to 25% IRR is what we target. However, for every dollar you invest, you'll get 50 cents to $2 back in losses year one through this accelerated bonus depreciation that we're able to get from these cost segregation studies. And it got, it was so popular that all my deals started so then I said, okay, let's, how do we get even more? So then we went to our builders and to our architects and our civil engineers and said, hey, let's, how do we design these buildings with cost segregation in mind on the first four part as opposed to being a afterthought, right? So now everything's movable walls. Everything you can take off and put back on. There's very little permanent structures other than the concrete and the steel. And now I can, now it went from, you know, 30 cents for every dollar invested all the way we just closed the deal a couple months ago that our investors got a dollar 50 back for every dollar they invested in losses year one man yeah Yeah, that on a side note if can you explain what cost segregation is kind of how that works and i'm just like grinning hearing you talk about that that move like that's an awesome move, man. Building, especially if you're saying you're doing these uh, kind of big box retail conversions. Like, yeah, I could see that building with cost seg in mind. I don't think I've heard many folks say that. I don't think I've ever heard that before. But that's like, yeah, that's genius. So tell tell us okay. a little bit, just real short, about what cost Let's, segregation is, right. and then how that can be powerful. To understand cost segregation, you need to understand how depreciation works. So commercial property is depreciated over like 39 and a half years or something. So that means every year you get to take one thirty-ninth of the value of your facility and write it off as a ghost loss on your property to account for like wear and tear and all this other stuff, right? So that's only you could do that only on the real property. You can't do that on the land, right? Because the land is land. It never degrades. It's land. So what cost segregation does is a cost seg engineer will go through your property and say, well, you know, this door isn't going to last 39 years. You're going to have to change out this rolling door and those springs inside the rolling door is going to go bad after five years. So you're going to have to change those out. So we shouldn't be depreciating these things over 39 years. We should be depreciating them over five years. And instead of it being considered real property, we're shifting it into personal property. So there's three categories in personal property that allow us to to use accelerated depreciation and and bonus depreciation. So there's a five-year category, a seven-year category, and a 15-year category. And because of the 2017 Tax and Jobs Act, anything below 20-year depreciation schedule, you get to take all of that in year one and then take it again over its regular depreciation schedule. It is, I mean, it is a godsend. It is such a great investing tool for real estate investors. If I can just give a quick aside here, I listen to you talk and I hear, I think two things. I'm like, you know, you, you mentioned one thing before is what is the difference between your accredited investor and these big, what did you call them? Pseudo institutional investors? Quasi institutional. Like they're not. Yeah. yeah, yeah Quasi institutional, right? Like you said, family offices, you know, these big families that have a bunch of money. And so what do they ask for? And 
they ask for your experience and they ask for the distribution schedule. Meaning, like, okay, this guy has already built blah, 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 and this is how he paid out previously on these things speaks more than prior real experience. And and then I hear you – so you take that, which is, huh, a bit of advice because I get this all the time from accredited investors, doctors. How do you vet a syndication? It's like, hmm, I think probably you could say experience is one of the most important. And then I hear what you're saying and how you grinded the locks. Grinded? Ground? How you <laughs> took the locks off the side of your storage facilities. And I hear you talk about cost seg. You know, you've done all of it. And this is, I, I echo this only because this is something that we have internally. Is was like, dude, we're going to do it all. I'm going to grind locks. I've been out there when the painting is done. I'm doing the investor relations. And you know what? When the time comes for me to do the Fernando maneuver, which is the, you know, build with cost segregation in mind, which actually I have a deal that I'm project managing on right now. And I'm like, okay, maybe I got to figure out, look into this cost thing a little bit more, cost seg thing a little more. When I do it, I'm going to be able to spit off because I can't right now. I don't know the details of you know the number of years, the different types of products, but I'm sure in your head, you know, this product can be uh, depreciated over this number of years. This one is uh, this number of years. Okay, this, eh, we can't really do this wall because, or whatever, because eh, you just can't find a product that can depreciate that quickly. Right. So whatever, we're not going to be able to depreciate that. But you know it, right? You know right. all these details. So if I, thinking about this now, I had to, I can finally answer a question I've been wondering for a while. How do you really vet a syndicator? And I think it's two things, experience, and then does the guy really know how to operate their facility? Do, you know, or are they just saying, yeah, we got the, the classic question I always think of is like, you know, how do you do SEO for your facility or how are you digitally marketing your facility? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, well, we got the best team in town and they're great. And it's like, oh, okay. But, you know, do you really know the details of it? You know, or are you just kind of... How do you depreciate your facility? Well, you know, it's really important depreciation versus you. And you're like, let me tell you the number of actual years that each particular product can be depreciated over. Right. All right. I like this. Sorry. So, I keep interrupting. No, you that's okay. Like, I love These are it. great snippets. I, the, sum, the summarization is great. So then, yeah. that, so, okay. Now I'm in, I, we, we started with buying with banks with my own money and now we're at cost sagging, getting these quasi institutions, and I call them quasi-institutional because true institutional money is like pension funds, uh, w sovereign wealth funds, so wealth funds put together by, by a country, right? I'm never going to yeah. touch that type of money because it's too restrictive. So now I'm at, okay, I got guys that want losses. Okay, so I'm raising capital, I'm raising capital, and then I realize I, I have all these investors that are qualified funds, 401ks, IRAs, and they can't take any of the depreciation. So that depreciation is going completely to waste, and they're saying, oh, man, isn't there a way that like I can get, you know, maybe if I don't take that depreciation and give it to another investor and I can get maybe a little bit better return, I'm like, ding, 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 new idea. So now we create a fund, and the fund has multiple classes in the fund. So there's a class for IRA investors and 401k investors where they get no depreciation or losses because they can't take them. 
but they have a higher preferred return or they have a higher preferred equity. And then we take all of their depreciation that they can't legally use anyway, and then we give it to the other class of shares that has maybe a lower preferred return, but has way higher losses. These are the guys that are like, I made too much money this year. I need to write all this money off. So now we go from, we go from bank our own money to bank with investor money to uh, interesting capital stack mixtures of lenders, including banks, CPACE, with investor money on individual deals. And now where we are is a fund that invests across multiple deals that not only takes care of the investors that want a lot of depreciation, but also takes care of the investors that don't get, can't use that depreciation and then get compensated in other ways for net depreciation. So that's that's been the, the, the I guess it wasn't as rapid fire as we thought it was going to be, but no, that's that the was, whole time. But that was awesome, <laughs> right? It, but what's the general theme? You know, it's like creativity and you knowing what the hell's going on, like right. actually knowing what you're doing every single step of the way. My, I was talking to Bill, the co-host of this podcast. We kind of split up the episodes. He does the single family, multifamily. I do the self-storage. And he's like, you know, that other episode that we did, we talked a lot about mindset, but I wanted to dig into the, like, I can listen to mindset all day, you know, people talk about mindset, and he's kind of like poo-pooing it, which I, I agree with to a, a certain degree. But but then again, you know, look at what you're doing, and I honestly said I see these same things in our operations. Like, mindset does matter, and if, yes, it's important to know the absolute specifics of how you're going to do these things, but sometimes jumping in and doing your very first deal Sure, mitigate those risks, but you're not going to know all this stuff until you're into the nitty-gritty of it. And you didn't have this, which, again, amazingly creative idea, by the way, like splitting up these classes and within the fund to – because everybody, every investor has a different thing that they need or want, so you're splitting it up. Absolutely makes sense. You know, Having this – the ability to come up with these things, you've got to be in the fit. Like, you, I understand that. I haven't done that particular thing. I, I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. Like, you wouldn't have come up with that idea unless you were in it. And it wouldn't have really been useful unless you're in it, you know? So I think to retort Bill and Mai's conversation <laughs> previously, mindset conversations do matter. I guess it's like the way you frame them, right? So uh, here's something I'm wondering about this. You're, you're doing these, you're creative, okay? So... How in these relations, in these relations, do you find that education is something that a problem with at all? Because like you tell it to me, I'm like, oh, boom, got it. That makes sense. But I assume you're pitching these kind of things. It's kind of a long pitch, right? To me, it makes sense. But most your or a, a certain degree, of your investors don't fully understand the whole concept, do they? So a few things I want to touch on there. So number one, my pitch is not long. And the reason for that is because of understanding psychology. So there are a few great things for the people out there pitching. These are hard, like specific things you can do right now to make your pitches go much better. Number one, go read the book Pitch Anything by Orrin Cleff. It talks about how, do you, how the psychology of the brain works when new and novel ideas are at you and how to keep people from closing up from something they don't understand to being like, well, actually, that's really interesting. I want to learn more about that. The second thing is go watch this TEDx video on YouTube called How to Avoid Death by PowerPoint. And then the last book I would read is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. 
combine those three things together and you will be a pitching machine. It's just so for the guys out there. So that's number one. But the second thing that I want to say that you said is, you know, these, these investors don't know a lot. And that's actually going back to my of educating the market, educate the market to dominate the market, right? By the time and for the first time, I can't tell you how many times they have picked up the phone and they say, Fernando, I feel like I already know who you are. I know about the immigrant parents from Brazil and college and, and rich dad poor because they've heard all of this already. They've heard me explaining what cost segregation is. They heard how the fund structure works, right? So, and sure. in the very rare occurrence that they haven't heard of that, and typically the people that come to me that don't know a lot about me is because they're sitting around, you know, some table at a country club and you know paul over here is like yeah i made double my money in 13 months and they're like what and then they show them and they say okay well i want to talk to your guy now those guys there is a little education that needs to be done but it it is not to be done at the pitch you need to educate them first before you even think about pitching an investment to those types of people because you want them to fully understand the risks you want them to fully understand the industry so what i actually have is i took a, a segment of these podcasts that i've done I watched every one of them. I rewrote the flow to make it less conversation and more of like a, a class, you know, classroom setting. And then I went in front of a camera. I had this great mustache. It's wonderful. You have to see it. And I call these my accelerator videos. And it's eight videos that break down the storage industry from beginning to end. The first video is why is storage better than other asset classes? Then it goes into how do we market for storage? How do we buy them? How do we operate and manage them? How do we exit from them? How do we raise money for them with syndications? How do we structure the, the, the tax advantages? How do we work with, with large syndicated partners of REITs? And it breaks down every one of these steps, how to underwrite a facility, all in separate videos that are each about 45 minutes long. And then at their leisure, they can go watch it at any time they want. And then they can get a, you know, they don't have to think of it like a classroom because they see this guy with this crazy mustache during the video, so they're, they're giving a little chuckle. And then the best part about that is now they have the education as if they are their own investor. And I don't send those videos to them to make them an investor of mine. Those videos are written for people or, or, and were filmed for people that want to do this on their own. So it's written from someone that wants to become a Fernando, not wants to invest with Fernando. And then they can make the choice. Do I want to do this or do I just want to click the easy button and give my money to Fernando? Yep. And that makes a ton of sense, right? Like, and there's folks out there that are going to use those videos and be like, okay, I'm going to try to do this myself, you know? And then folks that are just like, eh, maybe I'll just invest in a passive type thing. And it's funny. So you, you mentioned mindset. So I, I, I beat this like a dead horse, the mindset thing. It's super important. But one thing that I, the way I break apart people in the world are two categories. There are abundance mindset mentality people, and then there are scarcity mindset mentality people. So a lot of my competitors are saying, why are you teaching your own competition? Why are you telling them how to do exactly what you do to compete with you? And I say, you know what? There's more than enough to go around. There's absolutely more than enough to go around. And if I can add value, there's a small percentage chance that those people that I taught will come back and do deals with me. They'll bring a deal that I didn't have to pay for marketing to get. I didn't have to spend time negotiating. They just bring me in for my expertise where they have holes and they need to learn. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That this concept of this abundance, you know, mindset is it, my one buddy Sean. He's he's real big onto that, and I, you know, it, it's an interesting concept because it's like, yeah, if you're just constantly defensive and like curled in and like, oh, everything's out to get you, you know, you're just not, you're you're not gonna 
establish quality relationships. I mean, people, right. I think the best, like, new but profound relationships I've ever had were people that I'm like, hey, let me just I'm tell you about a million things. And then they're like, oh, okay, maybe there's something here. And if they're not somebody that aligns with you, well, be it, you know? And then they they just move on. They're like, oh, that guy was cool. He told me all this cool stuff. But if there is something there, then they know, wow, I know exactly what this guy's about, as opposed to like being, you know, reclusive or kind of coy and not, you know, letting on to what you're all about. It's something people appreciate, I think. There's so much like spin and my my wife, she's she's a she was a model in Hollywood and never lived out there. But she kind of tells me a little bit sometimes like the mindset that she experienced out there and speak for her a little bit but she she'd always tell me like yeah like everybody always kind of had this angle she she had some good friends out there but there's always like she always felt she's kind of like being manipulated you know and Mm -hmm. she had to dig really really hard to find these people that were like real people that weren't trying to come at you for something and if you just like exude that and people like oh dude i know what this guy's all about that's something powerful in itself let me let me give you a perfect example how me being super abundant and putting my cards on the table with a seller was able to convert the seller f- from being a seller into a partner, okay? So this is a ground-up development in North Carolina. Seller wanted a couple million bucks for the land. And we were trying to figure out a way to structure this. It was a v- it's a very large project, the cost on it. So I tell a seller, it's like, here's how we need to structure it and here's why. And I tell them exactly how I do my business. We raise capital to syndicate our investors, make you know roughly this type of return. Then we get debt for the remaining. We put a little bit of our own money in as well. And then we, we operate for five years and then we sell it at this price. And I showed him all of my numbers, right? And yes, then I, yes. he, I see him kind of like grinning a little bit. So I say, you're going to do with this money once I give it to you. And he said, uh, well, I'm not going to make that type of return. That's for sure. I said, well, do you want to? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, here's what we can do. Because <laughs> I, I know a deal in case right. you want one. Yeah. So I said, here's what we can do. You're selling me this land for $3 million bucks. How about you join my partnership on this deal? And since you've owned this land for forever, we will contribute it as equity. And then when we go get a loan... Based on the size of this deal and the value of your land, it, I think the land is worth more than the three million bucks. We're going to get an appraisal, and we're going to work with some some lenders that I know, and they're going to allow us to use the land as the payment, and we won't have to go raise any capital from any investors on this deal. Or if we do, it'll be a very small amount. Dig into that. So this, I, I keep thinking of all the when I talk to you for some reason, I think of all these like people in my life, right? and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to send. Uh, this is going out to one of our very trusty and awesome uh, bankers that we work with. So tell me, and in doing so, kind of <laughs> tell my banker the way to structure one of one of these deals. So it's like, okay, the land. Let's just make it super easy, right? So the the total build cost is a million, or make the numbers like really straightforward. Tell me the deal, because I don't fully understand how that would work. I mean, I get it, right? The guys so contributing equity, yeah. So I'll do it specifically with this deal because those numbers I know straight on my head instead of trying to make hypotheticals, okay? So total project cost on this to build it, to do the pre-development, 
all the interest carry and operating carry that I need to operate it before it becomes cash flow positive, that's all going to hit about $16 million, right? Not including the price of the land, 16 million bucks. Okay. Then I went to the SBA and I said, hey, SBA, I have land here and I want to use it in equity. And they say, well, if you bought it within the last two years, we're going to have to use your purchase price, not the value that the appraisal gives you. Because if it was bought for a price, that means that's what it's worth, even though that's not the case, right? Real estate is a... So they have their... Yep, they're very... But a lot of banks, a lot of banks are like this, right? So I asked the seller, I said, how long is land, Mr. Seller? And he's like, 30 years. And I was like, okay, so there's no way they can use your basis. They're going to have to get an appraisal, and they're going to have to go off of the value of that appraisal, okay? So let's just say that it appraises for $3 million, which I think is going to appraise for way more. It's 25 acres of land. So let's say it appraises for $3 million. The SBA requires that you put anywhere between 10 to 20% down. So in this example, let's just assume it, that they're gonna put, I need to put down 15%. So I brought it to my guy. I said, listen, here's what this, this is valued at, I think. Here's what uh, conservatively think, I think it's valued at, way less than what I think it's actually going to appraise for. He said, even at that conservative value of $3 million, you won't have to bring a dime of your own money into the deal and like we can get it done. That 15% of the 16 mil is like... 2.5 or whatever and i mean you're saying minimum it's three mil that, that this thing's gonna appraise for um, oh, yeah. uh, super conservatively right so right. obviously no way it's gonna appraise for higher but you have tons of wiggle room so then the bank just says okay and so how did you structure what is the exact details of that structure then does right. that guy own does a seller own right. a percentage equity still or yep so there's 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 two main ways to do it so i'll show you how i'm doing it with this one and i'll show you how i'm doing it on this next one that i'm working on right now so the way we structured it with him is we brought him in as what's called a preferred equity investor so remember when we were talking back to the the people that wanted to use 401k and ira money but they couldn't take the depreciation they were considered a preferred equity and that just means where in the capital stack they are lenders always at the top right they're the first one to get paid back if anything happens then the next person to get paid back is your preferred equity then the next person to get paid back is your common equity and then me fernando as the general partner i'm a separate class of shares i'm the very last person to get paid back so if there's any profit then at the very end, I get to take it, but everyone else has to be paid back first. So I said, as a pref equity structure, Mr. Seller, you are below the bank, but above everyone else. You are the first person to be paid back the second that the, the loan is paid back. And in addition to that, we're also going to give you the same type of terms that I give to all of my investors, which is, you know, typically my investors will double their money in five years or less. Now, you doubling your money, let's let's run through the math. So this is how we're doing it with the new one now that I have this pitch down. We just formulated this whole pitch like within the last six yeah, months. Yeah. So let's say he sells me the land for $3 million, okay? He's going to have to pay long-term capital gains on that land, right? So that is yep. called 20% because he's a wealthy individual. So that means of that $3 million, he's actually only getting $2.4 bucks, right? My investors typically make a 20% internal rate of return. So let's just make this simple. And instead of using IRR, let's just use 20% return in general. So on that $3 million, he makes that $3 million. Now he's going to get 3.6 million back. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give him of that 3.6, I'm going to give him enough cost segregation bonus depreciation so that he doesn't pay 
any taxes on it, right? So now instead of his net being, what was it, 2.4 million, his net is 3.6. So he actually is making $1.2 million above what he was actually going to make originally. So that 1.2 over that 2.4 is a 50% return on investment by just putting the money into the putting the deal into the syndication as opposed to me paying him cash for it. He's getting literally 50% extra value for that. Yeah, and then I assume 1031 it is kind of the goal for some of these guys or then they just I guess if he needs <laughs> 3 point whatever he, in cash, then I guess he could do that He can too, 1031 but, it. Yeah. He can do a structured installment sale where he takes the money in, you know, certain tranches over a 5-year period and only pays like 4% tax on it and you don't have that sure. same time restriction that you have with a 1031. I mean, there's so many super creative yeah. tax ways that you can get around. And that's another value add I always give to these sellers, say, "Hey, before you decide which way you want to go, get your CPA on the phone and have them talk to my tax strategist. And he has yeah. been doing this for 52 years, and, and he's not, he's not going to replace your CPA. He's there to give your CPA the tools so that you can m- maintain the relationship with your CPA. But he'll show you how to best structure this in a way that is the most tax efficient for you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just huge value, right? Like everything you're saying there – and even I think in my mind, if if somebody's nervous about like, oh, you know, these because that's I, I find more and more that folks that is something they're really concerned about is what is the tax hit going to be? It's OK, well, you can also little time to plan ahead. Right. So you're like you're in on this deal. And like you mentioned, there's a bunch of creative strategies at the exit, too. So it gives you time to kind of like contemplate and work through some of these problems. But, or find somebody who has a great tax strategist that can talk to your accountant. And you're like, okay, this is a much more reasonable exit than just like, okay, here's your cash, and then you give it to you know Uncle Joe or whoever's the president at the time, just pockets it or however taxes work. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. So I want to I want to switch up a little bit here. We okay. uh, we're getting close to the end of the show. I, I just want to ask one more thing because. Wealth of knowledge. Tell me a little bit about your views on this big box retail kind of thing that you're doing. So you find these Kmart's or whatever's going out of business. To tell me a little bit more about that story. Yeah. So this is has been a game changer for our our style of the way we do deals, right? Because we have three main tranches. We buy the mom and pop stuff that we still do. We put them into large portfolios and sell them. So these are existing cash flow assets. On the opposite side, we do these ground-up developments of Class A REIT-grade developments, and we either refinance into long-term permanent debt or sell them to a public storage or a CubeSmart or one of those types of guys. And in the middle, we have kind of a hybrid where we're faster to cash flow, cheaper cost of construction, and still getting the size of the square footage that we need to attract these larger buyers that have big checkbooks, right? So let's just break down numbers here. Prior to the pandemic, I was about $90 all in per foot on doing a storage deal of this type of class, magnitude. Class A, basically. Class A. Yep. Class A. Yep. Now, because of supply chain shortages, pricing volatility, it, now we're falling more at about $111 a foot. Okay. With that being said, dying, and the reason I love these big box retailers is because look at the locations that they're in. Where malls were built was because they were surrounded by dense residential. The median incomes of the people in the surrounding area were very high, and they had very high traffic counts. What do we want as storage investors? Dense residential, 
high traffic counts and high median incomes, right? So it's like it, they're ready. I don't even need to do the research. If it's good enough for yep. Sears, it's good enough for me, right? If it's good enough for Walmart, yeah, it's good for me, yep. right? So, so I said, okay, this is great. And then you go and you see these these sites are have been sitting empty for four years, five years, or what we call they're dark. They've gone dark or dormant, right? And they're no longer even trying to get them leased because they know no one wants to lease a hundred thousand square feet or one hundred forty thousand square feet of this type of building that's already pretty old. It has some maintenance that needs to be done, deferred maintenance. So I go in and say, okay, what are you willing to take for this? And already they start super low because they're like, oh my gosh, someone actually wants to buy this from me? Like, we've been are paying taxes in on the this. empty Kmart? Yeah. Like that's where they live? Or yeah. Well, I mean, think about it. You're, you're paying property taxes on a massive space in a very high-tax district because it was a shopping mall originally, yes. right? So the last deal I did, I bought 110,000 square foot Sears building for $9 a foot, $9 per square foot. That is phenomenal. Back when, when these buildings were in their heydays, you know, in the 90s, people were trading these things at $100 a foot or, or more. So I'm buying it for one-tenth yeah. the cost. So now I go in, I typically have to do, you know, this deferred maintenance on the roof, the facade, the mechanicals, the electrical, and the plumbing, so that MEP, right, just to get the envelope ready to go. And then I actually do the build-out on the inside. Now, that helps me for a few reasons. Number one, when you're in the Midwest or in the North, uh, there's times of the year that you can't pour concrete because it is so bitterly cold. And I guess right now, even down in Texas, I, my buddy in Austin just sent me a photo where his trees outside his house in Austin, Texas, were literally covered in frozen rain, right? Just icicles across all the trees. So you can't pour concrete. In the other areas that are super hot right now, like Texas, like Florida, it sometimes it gets too hot where you can't pour concrete when it's too hot in the summer, right? So then that causes delays. And because we use debt to buy these things, every day we're losing money that the project isn't yeah, going, right? Yep. So now we're, we're, we're shelved in. We built. The nice part, like I said before, is now my project cost, because the envelope or the structure I got for so much cheaper, including the deferred maintenance, as opposed to buying you know, three stories of steel or three stories of concrete, my project cost shrinks by a substantial amount, anywhere between you know, 20 to 25%. But in addition to that 20 to 25%, I'm also saving on my interest and carrying costs because my project timeline goes from 12 to 14 months to six to eight months to get this thing up and running and leasing. So now my real savings are almost like 30 to 35% because I'm able to get hit on both of those fronts. So not only does do my investors make more money, but it's, it has less risk than a ground up development to my, to my investors as well. And what we've noticed is there is a huge appetite by the large you know, top 50 self-storage owners in the country type of product. Yeah. Thinking of that exit, right? Yeah. Oh, you got to always there's think a, of the exit first. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, uh, there's a Kmart by my house that I've been eyeing for a while. <laughs> I, I think you might have convinced me. I've been, I've, I've been kind of busy. I'm like, I don't know. I haven't stopped in yet. But I'm like, all right, that Kmart. I'm going I'm to get you. I know it. All right, Fernando, dude, it's been awesome. We're ready to move towards the end of the show here. We got two things. We got the rapid fire four, and we have the deal proposal. The Rapid Fire 4, if you're ready. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay, the Rapid Fire 4. Four questions. These alternate every single show. You got 30 seconds to answer. 
Some of them might be a surprise. Some of them I told you ahead of time. Some of them you don't know. So question number one, give us one bit of advice, like actual heartfelt advice that's not BS. Be empathetic. You have no idea how much farther you'll get in your life by having empathy and sympathy for the person sitting across the table from you, whether it's a negotiation, whether it's your, your spouse. Tactical empathy is the word I'm going to use. So read, read Chris Voss's Never Split the Difference, and it'll go way into depth more than the 30s I have here. Awesome. 30 seconds. That was 24. You still got time left on the clock. Question number two, do you think your political views influence your investing strategy at all? So what I tell people is that I'm pretty apolitical because regardless of what side's in office, they always have loopholes in the tax law that benefit them. So what I do is I look at where can my investments make the most money for my investors. Awesome. I love it. Question number three. Tell us a little secret about syndication that not everybody would know. Ooh, that's a good one. The most important piece of raising money is the servicing of your investors, the investor relations. You need to be available. You need to be able to answer all their questions. You need to over-communicate. That is, before you raise any dollar, you need to have your investor relations down pat. I already know the guy. I, don't, I know a guy I might send that one to as well. All right, question number four. What asset class are you interested in investing in but you haven't really invested in yet? Great question. So very similar to self-storage, but I'm going into what is called contractor storage. There's a, the demand for contractor storage in the United States is almost 20 times the demand of self-storage right now. And these are people that have small businesses that don't have enough room for their own warehouse, so they rent a much larger unit, maybe with a smaller office, inside one of your larger facilities. Yep, contractor storage. Right now, we're heavily considered building one of these. I'm having a little trouble figuring out the demand. What, what's your kind of take on that? Because it's not you know, square foot per capita. It's, there's no standard way that I see. What's your kind of take on the so, right number of these things? So this is new for us, so don't hold me to this. But one of the things that we're looking at right now is how much what they call small bay warehousing is in the area and how full is it? Because that's your real competitor. It's not the big warehouses. It's not the, self, the small self-storage facility. It's the ones that, hey, here's 5,000 square feet for rent or here's 4,000 square feet for rent. Also the flex office space that are within that, those sizes, that's your real competitor for contractor storage. Got it. I love it. So you're looking at competitors similar to self-storage, right? Yeah, I think uh, we're probably going to try our hand at those as well. We got a facility or 12 acres and we got plenty of room to expand, but I think we kind of hit, we're close to the top on self-storage. I think we could build some more there as well, but I'm like, yeah, maybe we try our hand at these contracts. What is, so what is the term that you're using to market these things? So the, from my searches, it is not a, there is not one single agreed upon term. And so that makes the marketing of it kind of interesting. It, same, you know, I like mean, same thing with self-storage, right? Common? There's self-storage, yeah. mini warehouse, storage units, you know, it's same kind of thing. So we, we look at, we will literally say storage. We'll do uh, mini warehousing, like true mini warehousing. And then my yeah. construction management, my construction manager, Eric, he just brought something up to me the other day. I can't, I can't think of it right now, but after the show, he sent to me huge demand for this. And an offshoot yeah. of this, if you look into even something else, there's something called contractor yards, which are more, they're open air contractor storage sure. with fenced off camera securities but it's more for people that have like paving businesses or gardening businesses you know greenscape landscape that type of stuff yeah. it's another one we're seeing a lot of demand for 
Yeah, so you put a whatever 20 by 20 or or you know even bigger you know 40 by 40 and then you also give them this fenced in yard and then they can have their trucks they can have all the stuff that need that can be stored outside and then they have their work bay and it's like yeah yeah i we're thinking about we got 12 acres so i'm like yeah maybe we try our hand we build one or two of those take it slow see what the demand is then we're like oh shoot we need to build a lot more is kind yeah. of my gut of how that contractor yard contractor garage hey and it's easy to phase in you know seo oh easy right you can build one at a time it's not this huge project if there's anybody out there who's a super skilled digital marketer and for free wants to send us a uh, a report on the top like 10 keywords for what people are searching for these things i would absolutely love it because i I, I can't seem to figure it out exactly right because it's like this kind of cutting edge. I don't know what the keywords are, and I'd assume there's a handful of, kind of top-end keywords that people are searching for, and it, it, I want to build my content around those keywords. So while we're here, send me send me the keywords I need to put on the site. I'll, I'll, I'll blast them to you too, Fernando. All right, cool. Fernando, the very end of the show, the cap deal proposal. We ask this every show. It's a lighthearted but serious deal that we do live on the show. So the question is as follows. It can be any type of deal, whether it's, uh, you know, just to get involved in a syndication or you have a pitch that you want to pitch me right now or you want me to pitch you. If I wanted to do a deal with you live on the show right now, what would it take to make it happen? Bring me a good deal and tell me where you have holes in your organization where I can fill and then we can do a deal. As I told you before we started recording, 35% of the deals we are doing right now are with these first timers that are bringing us great properties but just don't know how to raise the money or don't know how to do the development or pre-development. They don't know how to do the construction management and we can fill any hole that you don't have currently in your in your team. Yeah, yeah I have. That's a good answer because I have that. Uh, we were talking about this before. Like, I have a page on our website that we title for first time, right? And there's this s- group of people that have great property, have a great idea. Maybe they're experienced business folks, but it's like, I don't want to go into the whole self-storage game, do a whole development myself having never done it before, or they just don't have the bandwidth, right? They run right. a construction company or they run a real estate company and they have the perfect place of land. And they're like, you know what? I got to find somebody to partner with this. And then, like you're saying, the negotiations we did uh, with our very first deal that we did with one of these first-timers, I remember, I did that same technique where I'm like, can I just show you the numbers, please? And this is why we have to get it for this price and give you this much equity because, like, this is how we're doing it. I'm not trying to be this ultra-shrewd negotiator. Like, these are my numbers. And the guy's like, oh. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Fernando, awesome episode, man. Hopefully one of your more exciting podcasts that you've been on. Hopefully you're enjoying Brazil. You said you're, you got Brazil in the background. I hear some like uh, Brazilian trucks going by and stuff. <laughs> Sounds like a fun time. Yeah, I've been down here since September, and I'll return back to Chicago in uh, probably April. Dude, that's awesome. So, so good. Now, to wrap it up, is there any specific way that, you, uh, that the audience can support you? Yeah, just reach out, see how uh, how we can add value. So I usually tell people you can go the easy way to go to our website, www.sse.com, so se.com. Awesome deal, whatever you want. There you go. And uh, check out the website too. Anything else that you want to let our listeners know, Fernando? No, just go out there and take risks. Get out there, 
do some deals. I love it, man. Absolutely. So good to have you on the show. I'm sure I'll be chatting with you again. Appreciate it, Jordan.